0: Hi again, everybody, I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast, the Can't Keep a Good Man Down edition, as we check in with running back Rodney Anderson as he looks to bounce back from the knee injury that ended his rookie season. Then after I chat with Rodney, I'll talk to Bengals.com editor Jeff Butch Hobson, who is among the media members that help select the players inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Will Ken Anderson, Ken Riley, or any other former Bengals get in anytime soon? That discussion is coming up. The Bengals Booth podcast is presented by Prime Sport, the official fan travel and hospitality partner of the Cincinnati Bengals. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest thing since a face-to-face interview. One of the casualties of the COVID-19 pandemic has been the opportunity to interview players and coaches in the locker room during the Bengals' off-season program. Fortunately, I've been able to talk to guys over the phone for this podcast, but it's just not the same, and I miss that personal interaction. My interview with Jeff Hobson this week was face-to-face, albeit with masks. It could be a while before that's permitted again with players and coaches, and I really look forward to that day. I will not take that access for granted in the future. Now, let's get to this week's guests. My first conversation is with Rodney Anderson, one of Cincinnati's three sixth-round draft picks prior to last season. The former Oklahoma running back missed his rookie year after tearing his ACL in the Bengals' final preseason game, marking the fourth time in the last five years that he suffered a season-ending injury. In his first year with the Sooners, it was a broken leg on a kickoff after having only one carry. In his second year, Rodney broke a vertebrae in his neck in preseason camp. In his third year, he was healthy and ran for more than 1,100 yards and 13 touchdowns, including a 201-yard game against Georgia in the Rose Bowl. And that was the year that his teammate Baker Mayfield won the Heisman Trophy, so Oklahoma didn't exactly emphasize the run. In his fourth year, Anderson opened the season with 100 yards on only five carries in Week 1, before tearing his ACL in his right knee in Week 2. The same knee he injured again, Last year, last month, Rodney posted a video on his Instagram feed that shows him running and cutting around cones on a football field. And I spoke to him this week about rebounding from his most recent setback. Rodney, it's been about nine months since your knee injury. How are things progressing?
1: Uh, they're going really well. Um, you know, I'm I'm back uh, I'm back cutting and you know, running full speed. So it's going uh, it's going pretty well.
0: The rules for using team facilities were different for players rehabbing from injuries. Were you going into Paul Brown Stadium on a regular basis right up until the March shutdown, and, and have you returned?
1: I was going up until the March shutdown, but uh, as soon as the whole lockdown thing uh, started happening, I haven't been back since. Uh, so I've just been, you know, timing with uh, the trainers and uh, just, you know, going about it that way.
0: Nick Cosgray has referred to you as the perfect patient in in what way do you think that that's the case?
1: I don't know they They make it really easy to show up and you know do rehab and you know get my work done. uh They've just been you know great staff and really
0: helpful. We're visiting with Rodney Anderson. What's it been like for you to be in Cincinnati for the off season?
1: I have no complaints i I've really grown to love Cincinnati and I like the area that I live in and so I kind of made it my home and I've been enjoying it.
0: You were spectacular in your NFL preseason debut last year in week three against the Giants and then just a few days later you tore the same ACL against the Colts in the final preseason game that, that you tore in your final year at Oklahoma. Can you describe the emotional roller coaster?
1: Of course it was you know very disappointing that you know I didn't get to play my first uh, NFL season but you know, God has plans that I can't understand. So I just kind of got to roll with the punches and take each day as it comes.
0: You were part of the team and took part in meetings last year. Was that beneficial?
1: Definitely. I mean, you know, staying in the the meeting rooms uh, whenever I was able to, you know, be more mobile after my surgery was definitely a huge help, Uh, helped me gain a better understanding of the offense and, you know, just things as a whole. You know, it kept me connected with, uh, my teammates as well so I guess I, I didn't get to do anything you know physically with them but mentally I was I would consider myself you know on the same page.
0: Were there any teammates or coaches that you learned a lot from?
1: Yeah definitely um you know just uh to name one off the top of my head Jamal Singleton my uh running back coach I mean he's he's very uh specific he pays attention to the, he's very big on the little details and so Uh, I feel like having uh, somebody like that in my cornering uh, just really helps not only me, but, you know, the rest of the running backs as well.
0: He's such a positive guy. Was that helpful?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, especially on the days, you know, where I wish that I could have been out there at practice or, you know, we're watching game tape and I wish I could have been in the game. Uh, You know, having a positive coach, uh, you know, makes it easier, uh, you know, to show up and listen to meetings.
0: Rodney, for people that don't know your injury history, you've had a broken leg, broken vertebrae in your neck, and two torn ACLs, your one healthy season at Oklahoma, you're among the best players in college football, do you ask why me?
1: No, I mean it's it's tough. I mean you don't you don't want it to happen to you, but you know, like I said, God has plans that, that we really don't understand. So, you know, I just I just try to trust in that and you know whatever whatever happens next is I'll just take it as it comes
0: the Bengals did not draft any running backs did you look at that as a vote of confidence for the guys that are currently on the roster I suppose so but at the same time anything can happen and
1: you never know how uh people are going to perform or even how me as a player is going to perform so you know I have faith in myself and I have faith in the other guys in the room and uh, I think, regardless of, what, of the outcome, it's going to be a good one.
0: Three of the guys in that room are former Sooners: yourself, Joe Mixon, and Samaje P. Ryan. Is that a point of pride? Uh, yeah, definitely.
1: I mean, it, it, I mean, I feel like it just shows that OU really puts out uh, quality backs, and um, I think that it's going to be beneficial to the team to have some OU, some uh, an OU backfield.
0: What have you thought of team Zoom meetings in the off season?
1: Uh, they've been interesting. I mean, you know, it's it's a great platform to uh, get information and for all of us to, you know, I guess kind of be in the same room. But, you know, I've, I've liked it. I've enjoyed it.
0: Do you miss anything about a normal NFL offseason program?
1: Obviously, yeah. I mean, I, if I had to choose, I'd rather be in the facilities doing things as normal. But, you know, it is what it is and kind of just got to do what you got to do.
0: We're visiting with running back Rodney Anderson. You probably were not a huge Joe Burrow fan last December when he threw seven touchdown passes in the first half against Oklahoma. But what is your reaction to having him in Cincinnati now to lead this team going forward?
1: You know, obviously, I haven't met him in person yet, but just over the Zoom calls, he's been, uh, you know, very confident. He, you can tell he's a great leader. And, you know, just he seems like a an overall good guy, too. So. Um, I feel like he's a great addition to the team, and I can't wait to see uh, what he can do. We're all allowed to be back in the facility.
0: What did you think when you watched that playoff game against Oklahoma?
1: You know, it was a lot of screaming at the TV, but, (laughs) uh, you know, I mean, what can I do here in Cincinnati? (laughs) Um, All I can do is scream at my TV, I guess.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mentioned that Giants preseason game last year. You really gave Bengals fans a glimpse of what you're capable of doing. What did that do for you to get into that game after your long rehab and dazzle, particularly in the passing game?
1: It was just a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I, 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 like you said, I hadn't been on the field in a minute, so you know, it, was, it felt really good to get out there and you know, get a little loose.
0: Describe what you are doing now uh, in terms of your workouts, your rehab, etc.
1: Uh, well, like I said, I stay on FaceTime pretty consistently with Nick Cosgrey, uh, the trainer, and uh, he tells me what to do as far as my therapy and rehab is concerned. And then uh, I've been working at this training facility in uh, Kentucky called Peak Fast, uh, you know, just conditioning and, you know, strength stuff um, pretty much Monday through
0: Saturday. I mentioned the team Zoom meetings, Rodney, and in the past week, the team has used those meetings to address the murder of George Floyd. Do you think those meetings were helpful? I do
1: think that they were helpful, um, specifically for the players and the coaches uh, who were in them. And, you know, I think that um, we gained, we were able to gain a better understanding of each other and uh, our backgrounds.
0: Has the worldwide reaction given you hope?
1: I think that the attention that it's getting is, is positive because you know
0: people need to know that black men and women are getting killed in the street by law enforcement officers. You know they're supposed to be there to protect us, and
1: you know that's that's not been the case. So um, I think the exposure is good. You know just from the sense that you know people are finally starting to see.
0: Tell us a little bit more about what you've done this off season aside from rehabbing.
1: I mean, aside from training and rehabbing and all that and, and meetings, I just. I just hang out with my girlfriend, uh, Kate, Caitlin Cox, and I have a, a cat and a dog, and I started a garden, and so that's kind of been
0: it's been keeping me busy, aside from football. Do you have a green thumb? I don't want to brag on myself, but <laughs> my tomato plants
1: are looking pretty good right now.
0: <laughs> You'll be one of the few players in the Bengals' locker room that can uh, discuss his gardening skills.
1: I'm I'm happy to discuss my gardening skills at any time.
0: Just to wrap things up, describe how you're feeling at this point as you get ready for your second NFL season.
1: Um, right now, I just, I'm, you know, I'm anxious to get started. Uh, I feel confident uh, in myself, and I also feel confident in the team. I feel like it's going to be a way better season than last year. You know, um, I just think I think it's going to come together.
0: Rodney, thanks so much for the time. Best of luck with rehab, and best of luck with that garden. Yeah, no problem. Rodney turns 24 the day before the Bengals' season opener, and here's hoping that the football gods bless him with a healthy season. If you don't remember that preseason game against the Giants last year, just search for Rodney Anderson on the Bengals' website and watch the three highlights that are available. He has the ability to be a big weapon in Cincinnati's offense. Before we get to our next conversation, here's a quick reminder that you can take your Bengals pride to the next level in 2020 with an official Bengals fan package from Prime Sport. When Ken Riley passed away last weekend, it led many of us to ask, again, why he and Ken Anderson are not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Perhaps the best person to answer that question is Bengals.com editor Jeff Butch Hobson. Every NFL team... As a media representative on the Hall of Fame committee, and Jeff represents Cincinnati. I spoke to him about the Hall of Fame and other Bengals news this week. Butch, the passing of Ken Riley last weekend has led to a new examination of his case for the Hall of Fame. You're the Bengals representative on the selection committee to vote on the modern candidates, but since their careers ended more than 25 years ago, Ken Riley and Ken Anderson are in the hands of the senior committee can you explain how that process works, and do you think either or both will eventually get in?
2: Yes, Horty. It's uh, the uh, senior committee is made up of uh, nine uh, nine members of the selection committee. It's a subcommittee, basically the selection committee, and that rotates every year. Uh, there are five guys. You know that rotates with uh, five guys that actually have the uh, final vote. The nine guys narrow it down to about. Uh, you know, I'd say to about fifteen or twenty guys, and then uh, they vote on it, and uh, you know they get it, they pare it down, and uh, with a vote, and then the five gentlemen discuss it uh, in Canton in August. And usually, there's one or two Hall of Famers in there advising them. The big time, uh, the big time frame to do it now, I, I you know, to make a pitch to these guys is in May and June uh, before they. Uh, you know, Ken and both Kennys have always been on the uh, top 20 list, and the answer I always get from these guys is, well, you know, they're in the queue, they're two of the more qualified candidates, but they have to wait their turn. Now, what that means, I have never really been able to get my, you know, arms around that. There's been a lot of guys from the 50s that have gone in, a lot of defensive players. I know they feel like defensive players have been shortchanged in the hall, so... Uh, which doesn't explain, again, Ken Riley being left out. But, you know, my only hope is that they've gotten who they've wanted to get in from the 50s and 60s, and now they're starting to work on the 70s and 80s. But, you know, again, uh, they say that, and then, you know, Ken Stabler got in a couple years ago, uh, when really Kenny Anderson is just a good candidate, if not better, than Stabler. So, to me, the big pitch... With Kenny and with the two Kennys And not just because their their careers are certainly Worthy of it and their numbers are certainly worthy of it But the Bengals have the fewest members Of any team in the Hall of Fame They only have one guy who played his entire career In Cincinnati, Anthony Munoz Uh, Two Charlie Joyner and Terrell Owens Charlie Joyner played there midway through his career Terrell Owens played the last year of his career There So, uh, I, you know, and this is always a fight For guys to, uh live to see the day, you know, and uh, that is the heartbreaking thing here with Kenny Riley. I, I know he's going to get in. I've had these guys tell me, look, Ken Anderson and Ken Riley are going to get in at some point. That was a tough break, too, when not one of them got in in the expanded class of 20. But there was a lot of politics going on there. They seemed more interested in getting in players from the 30s and 40s. You didn't even have a quarterback go in. Well, if you count uh, Green Bay, uh, the guy from Green Bay who was basically a you know, uh, a wing T quarterback, uh, he was Don Hudson's, uh, you know, quarterback, which is fine, I guess. But, uh, you know, for, for Kenny Anderson to still be out there and Kenny Riley after an expanded class
0: of 20, hard to swallow. When you say the time to make the pitch to these guys is May or June, what do you mean by that? Who's making the pitch? And who are they pitching?
2: I guess it's I'm making. I, I guess I'm making the pitch or all, or all supporters of uh, Ken Riley and Ken Anderson. I think that's been one of the biggest mysteries is when I actually do these guys sit down and do it. And it's the spring. It's now. So, you know, I make a pitch. And I think guys like Collinsworth and Anthony Munoz make a pitch. But these guys, the thing is, these guys know. Ira Kaufman, who is a, a, new, uh, who is a new senior committeeman uh, who represents the Tampa market, uh, you know, he's all over Ken Riley, you know, because he's a, he's a hometown guy. So I know Ira's in, you know, and I know all these guys are in, they, they send me back emails after I send them something. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Well, okay. I think, I think they know. It's just, uh, you know, it's just, uh, I hope, uh, I really pray for the day that not only that the Anderson family. But the O'Reilly family can go, and Kenny's got Kenny's got four grandsons. You know, I, I, I hope to God they're there with their parents and uh, wife and uh, Kenny's wife, Barbara.
0: And, uh, and it will be a little bittersweet, but uh, hopefully the emphasis will be on sweet. You do get to vote on the more modern candidates, so let's talk about some of those guys. Willie Anderson, Corey Dillon, Chad Johnson. What kind of support do they have among the voters? Unfortunately, not as much as they should have.
2: Uh, We've had this, uh, they call it a backlog of great offensive linemen from the 90s. And I've said it in the meetings. i said, you're talking about this backlog you have of left tackles. And there is. There have been some great ones. Ogden, Rofe, Walter Jones. And I said, but you haven't even put in the best right tackle of his time. You know, and Willie knew this before we all did. Willie knew it, was saying it when he played, that there was a bias to left tackles Because of the movie Blindside and what Lawrence Taylor did to Joe Theismann, Willie had us all. Willie's a savant, you know. And uh, yes, he has paid the price of being a right tackle. What's wrong with being the best right tackle of your era? He he deserves to be in, but he's been overshadowed by guys like uh, you know. They make a case for Tony Baselli, and he's a left tackle. And you know the big uh, oh well, he's a media guy, and plus he's also is you know has he played enough? There's always a little debate with him. You know, uh, he was a second pick in the draft, you know. So he's a sexy guy to talk about. All Willie did was he was a right tackle. He was a 10th pick in the draft. He blocked every guy in front of him that he ever played from, you know, from uh, being a young guy, blanking Reggie White in Green Bay to pitching a clinic against Julius Peppers in his prime here in 2006. Um, But, you know, Chad and Corey are probably – are probably more borderline guys, although they certainly have got to be mentioned. And I think Corey Dillon is a legitimate. He is a guy that should be in. If you're going to put Edgren James in, you've got to put Corey Dillon in. Different guys, different backs. They played with different teams. The thing with Corey, and I told him this when he played, He said, I, uh, I said, I hope you get 12,000 yards, because 12,000 yards seems to be kind of a, well, you get in. You know, there's certain numbers. I mean, football is not like baseball. The only way it is kind of like baseball is if you hit some, certain thresholds but it changes in football because the eras change so even more so now though if you get 12,000 yards they got to I think they got to think about putting you in because the length of your career and you just don't run it as much you know and Corey was in the passing game era and he didn't get 12,000 yards he got I think he got 11,000 and change but the thing was he uh he's got a Super Bowl ring uh he is not only the leading rusher in Bengals history but he's also holds the Patriots' single-season rushing record, you know, and he has two of the greatest 19, you know, he has two of the top 19 games of all time. He held the record; it was brief, but he held the record for three years. One of the great records in sports. I'm talking about the single-game rushing record. He broke he broke a record that was 22-year-old, 22, uh, 22 years old when he broke Peyton's record in 2000. So to me, he's got a better case than Chad. Uh, although Chad, you can, you know, my argument with Chad is why he should be mentioned. With the Reggie Waynes, I mean, his best years were better than Reggie Wayne's best years, except Chad just didn't have enough of them, you know. And uh, he's the only receiver in this century to lead his uh, conference in in receiving yards four straight years. The only other guy who's done that in history is Jerry Rice. So, you know, he should be in that conversation. But I think he's a little more borderline than Corey. But Corey, you know, Corey and Willie. It's don't get a lot of support in the room. I'm not sure why. Well, I do know why. They played on bad, you know, they played on bad teams that didn't get noticed. They played in a small market. I hate to say it, and Horty uh, I hate to ramble. But this is really gets into my goat now because this is really, and I've talked, to, I've talked to guys about this, and I've talked to you about it in the lab. These guys are so close. It's very subjective, you know. And a lot of times, guys throw up their hands and say, "Well, they want a Super Bowl, and the Super Bowl is the tiebreaker," and that's just not fair. Uh, you know, there are two, that has made what we do is we have a Hall of Fame filled with a lot of good players on great teams, and not enough great players from bad teams. Well, it's for great players. It's for the Hall of Fame. It's for Willie Anderson. It's for Corey Dillon. For guys who were grinding on teams that didn't get a lot of uh, a lot of uh, light. You know, but I I had a conversation. With a guy from the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, Who won four rings And I tried to make the argument about Isaac Curtis and this guy said "Oh, I don't know about Isaac Curtis And I said well I bet you didn't know that Isaac Curtis Has more catches and more touchdowns Than Lynn Swan And he has a better career yards per catch Than John Stallworth Both Hall of Famers And there was silence on the other end of the line He said well they didn't win the big one They didn't win four Not their fault Isaac Curtis changed the game they call it the Mel Blunt rule in Pittsburgh. You know, guys grow up today. It's it's sacrilege to touch a receiver. You know, you can't touch a receiver uh, until he's five yards off the line, right? Uh, well, no, uh, uh, you can't touch him five yards after he's off the line of scrimmage. That's because Paul Brown was sick of seeing Isaac Curtis get mauled. The only way they could cover him was to capitate him at the line of scrimmage. He got a rule passed. The guy was – and I was talking to Isaac this, the other day. We were talking about Kenny Riley. I said, I was, you might be the only guy, uh, only non quarterback who still, if he was still playing, would still be one of the top five picks in the draft because he is, he was the first great modern receiver. The man almost made the Olympic team. Got hands like flypaper. The great Dave Lappin will tell you about the game against Cleveland. He caught one ball, one handed down one sideline. And the next quarter did the same thing with the other hand down the other sideline against Cleveland. Um, You know, it's not their fault. They didn't, they didn't win this. They got them there. And
0: so it's, uh, that is a hard, I I, I hope people have got to get past that. NFL teams have not been able to have OTAs or mini camps. They've had to settle for zoom meetings and you were allowed to sit in on the defensive line zoom meeting recently. Based on that, do you think the Bengals are getting much out of these meetings? I am, uh, I am not going to start. After being in that meeting, I will not be
2: starting in that unit. That was the uh, first. (laughs) That's the first defensive meeting I've sat in since framing himself frosh 1973. The game has changed a little bit since then. Those guys get pretty, uh, they get pretty into it. I mean, let's face it. It's not as good. I mean, it's just not as good as sitting in a meeting and getting to know these guys. You know, what you miss is a DJ reader, you know, sitting next to a Geno Atkins and getting to know him. But not only that, but a Carlos Dunlap to go over to a Khalid Kareem, a rookie, and say, hey, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. Now maybe, and, and they really, you know. But when you listen to it on tape, Nick Easton, the defensive line coach, he spends time with guys that he has to spend time with. And I just saw that day's meeting, which lasted about an hour and a half. The first 25 minutes were with was with the whole defensive line. And then after that, Nick, uh, I stayed with Nick and the tackles, and Gerald, his assistant Gerald Chapman, and Mark Duffner, the senior defensive assistant, went with the ends and the Sam backers. They can't see each other on this thing, you know. And uh, I think there are times they might say something to each other. I didn't see it, but they can. They do have the ability to do that. Uh, most of it is with Nick and the guys. But what's impressive about Nick is he'll say to Ryan Glasgow tell me about josh tupo on this play so now you got glasgow and tupo are, are in it you know and um it's not as good but i think back to 2011 when uh that was the lockout it was the uh, debut of the dan hoard uh, uh bengals radio booth and uh it was the lockout and it was the thing with the lockout always the coaches could not talk to players after the draft and they didn't they weren't able to Jay Gruden wasn't able to talk to AJ Green and Andy Dalton together with a playbook until July 27th. So, yeah, this this isn't great, but you know what? They've it's been worse, you know? So, uh it's amazing what you can accomplish in a Zoom meeting. Not perfect, especially for a defense that has the potential to have seven new starters in that first third down package against a uh, the Chargers on September thirteenth at the Paul, but I think it's it's uh, I think it's
0: helping both veterans and rookies. Based on sitting in on that meeting, how difficult do you think it would be to have a new coaching staff this year, like the Cleveland Browns?
2: Extremely difficult, because this game is based so much on relationships. You know that, Dan. It's a, I think any workplace is just going into a guy's office, just going next to a guy's locker. Yeah, I, I I think it's very difficult for 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 a first year team. Uh, that's why you know a lot's being said about the you know the Bengals about having a new, but at least they've got it in place, and I think it's run pretty smoothly. I don't know now, of course, I don't know how the other teams are doing it. I imagine it's run smoothly, but Zach Taylor's has had a year to, uh, and of course he hasn't been able to prepare for anything like this. Who would? But. Uh, He's a tech, technological savvy guy. A lot of his coaching staff is they're young guys, so I think obviously they're a step up on the Cleveland Browns. You know, um, they're a step up on these new on these teams with new coaches. But I think it's going to come down to uh, it comes down to the play at the quarterback. You get a rookie quarterback, you know, so it might not matter that they have a new that they have a coaching staff with the air in. They still get a rookie quarterback, Cleveland has a third year quarterback. So, um, you know, I think in some ways, uh, they're
0: they're both at a little bit of a disadvantage. It's kind of funny with Zach, although he won't consider this to be funny, but we kept saying last year, this will be the toughest year you'll ever have to deal with. You're new, you lost your number one draft pick before the season even began. You lost your best player 45 minutes into the first practice. You've got a bizarre situation going on with your left tackle Cordy Glenn. It will never be this bad again. And now, going into his second uh, season, you've got a, a pandemic, uh, unlike anything the world has experienced since the uh, early 1900s.
2: Well, plus two, there's a lot more that the, than the pandemic going on in the league, as across the country, that they're dealing with that, and. You know, and and it can't be and it can't be uh, and can't be underestimated. You get you know you get uh, Joe Burrow is gonna it's gonna be only the be the second time, which to me is amazing, only the second time in history, that a uh, a Bengals rookie quarterback gets a home start starts his career with a home start and it hasn't been done in forty years. So that's amazing to me. It's also quite a challenge. It's also very intriguing because this guy. Burrow. He says all the right things. He does all the right things. He's seamless. He's seamless Joe, you know, and uh, on and off the field. So I can't wait. I mean, I can't wait to see the guy and his energy seems to have, uh, you can already tell his energy seems to have provided a little bit of a jolt offensively.
0: But you've been covering this franchise for a long time. Is the excitement generated by Joe Burrow different from previous high draft picks? Yes. I hate to you know sound like a bandwagon guy,
2: but I think We live in a different era, too, you know, and everything gets hyped. You know, I mean, uh, every guy, I mean, every story gets hyped. There are stories that get hyped today that 20 years ago I couldn't have got it in the paper. They would have said, Butch, hold that on, hold that for tomorrow's notes or run it Sunday, you know. Now it's a, in the news cycle, it's 17 minutes, it's trending on Twitter, you know. So we're in a different world, and so I think the hype is... People are pumped up Then you magnify it By the fact This fan base Hasn't had anything To follow They haven't been able To follow the Reds uh, They haven't been able To follow anything Or do anything It's been They've been, they've been uh, Locked up in their houses And all they've been Reading about is Joe Burrow So I think you multiply that And uh, yeah This guy is uh, You know He's a combination Of Sinatra And uh, you know Babe Ruth And uh, you know The poor guy I mean you know He's just Joe Burrow Out of Athens, Ohio You know and I hope that's how everybody treats him, but the, the hype is amazing and it's not his fault. It's uh, he happened to be born in the, you know, he happened to be b- born into a rookie year in 2020, which is, and ain't 1990
0: anymore. Earlier this week, the team held meetings to discuss the murder of George Floyd and the efforts to fight racism that have emerged since. You've talked to several players about those meetings. What took place in those meetings? I think Cordy was basically, uh, Zach gave them the opportunity, gave the players
2: and the coaches just the opportunity to talk. What was on their mind? What would they like to be, just to just talk? Uh, It didn't matter. It didn't matter what it was about. Was it your experiences? Was it, was it what you would like to see done? What are your thoughts about it? And that wasn't just, uh, and that just wasn't, uh, uh, confined to the African American players, you know, the African American players, the guys I talked to, they seem to draw support from their white teammates, um, so I think basically what it was, it was one of those things, they threw the meeting open, and what would be would be, you know, and it was, uh, as Sean Williams said, you know, raw, it was emotional, you know, you get a guy like Nick Eason telling, as he told it, deep, dark secrets from his, from his past, you know that's pretty personal that's pretty that's pretty emotional and uh, I think it was a uh, from what from what the guys said that I talked to I talked to uh, I talked to probably about three or four and I talked to coach Eason and my sense was that there was a bit of relief there was not only there was not only you know kind of a thankfulness that they were able to do that and get it out on the table I think they were this has been stuff they've been, had bottled up for not only years, but for two weeks. And like Sean said, you know, we have been, you know we're only, we've, been, we've been pent up inside. We're only, we've been around the same people. You know, we haven't really been able to vent anybody. It was an opportunity to vent, as Nick Easton said, to your brothers. So it, it sounded to me like it was very personal, very emotional. And I think Glasgow really hit the right note when he said, this is what every company in America should be doing. You know, and it was uh, it was really uh, one of the more emotional stories I wrote. I I, I had it made me text Willie Anderson and to and to thank him because he told me something about the way I characterized Justin Smith and the way I characterized Peter Warwick, and I didn't realize I was doing it. And uh, but he felt it was kind of it was a little bit I had kind of had made a racial stereotype, and I didn't even realize it. I'll never forget it. And as I was writing that story, I thought, you know, I want to thank Willie for doing that because I often think about that conversation. And then uh, he called me when he saw the text, and he really gave it to me pretty good. But it's always good to always good to hear from Willie, you know. But you know, I was kind of, meeting, you know, and, and then I asked the guys too. You know, I said, "What can I do? What can I? What, how can I help you? How can I help?" And they were great. They said, "You know, I think what they basically the message was, keep talking. You know, see what you, you know." If you
0: see something you don't think is right, say it, you know. So uh, I thought it was great. Paul Brown helped break the color barrier in professional sports in the 1940s when he signed Marion Motley and Bill Willis in Cleveland. Tommy Smith, who famously did a Black Power salute during the National Anthem in the 1968 Olympics, played for the Bengals the following year. So the Brown family has a long history of fighting discrimination, and they are taking action this time around.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point about Tommy Smith. I mean, he signed him, Paul signed him after the Mexico City Olympics that, uh, when he went to the podium and shared the black power suit with John Carlos, I believe. And, yeah, I think the, uh, the big thing with the Browns is they've, they've committed, uh, the, the, the families, uh, they're going gonna, they're gonna to commit $250,000 to social justice initiatives. Uh, it's a program that was begun two years ago. They want to expand on it. They want to uh, make it better. They want to get uh, more feedback from the players to see what other activities they can go into. I know it's uh, a guy who was here, uh, Michael Johnson, who has retired since, was a big believer in this about getting uh, the youth to, uh, uh, t- to you know, to interact with law enforcement at a young age to, to break down those barriers, you know. Uh, they're looking at, you know, I think they're looking at stuff like that and, you uh, You know, they're looking to take the initiative a little, you know, I mean, a step further uh, than the last time and by getting a lot of input from the players. So it's a it's an ongoing conversation, you know, even though the Bengals made the announcement, I think, on Saturday, the players met Monday. This isn't stopping. This is going to be an ongoing thing. And uh, um, it'd be something to watch as the uh, as not just this year, but as
0: the years develop. All right, final question. I'm going to end this with the first question that I asked Dave Lapham last week when we spoke. It's early June. How confident are you that the NFL season will begin on schedule?
2: I'm confident because the league seems pretty confident. They're going full speed ahead, you know. So I, I think we're going to play. I don't know what it's going to look like, you know. I don't know where you're going to be during the game. I don't know where I'm going to be during the game. I would imagine you're going to be in the booth, I guess, but I think these are all things that need to be worked out is uh, number of fans, number of media, you know. My opinion is I don't think we'll have an open locker room. I don't, I don't think we'll have an open media locker room this year. So not that probably fans probably don't care about that, but that's just stuff that's kind of it's going to come with the territory. How many people are going to travel on the plane with them? How many people are they going to want on a bus? What what is the traveling party going to look like? So there's a lot of there's a lot of things to be hammered out. The only thing I, I the only thing that I seem to know is they're trying like hell to play September 13th. So I would imagine, given that they have been full speed ahead like this, I I would imagine we will. I just don't know who's going to be watching it and who's going to be covering it.
0: Well, I know I'll be covering it. I just don't know where. This is the first interview I've done in ages that wasn't done over the telephone or on a Zoom call. We have stayed socially distant. We are wearing masks. We have worn them throughout. We are going to reapply the sanitizer to our hands momentarily, and uh, and I enjoyed this very much. Butch, thanks so much for the time.
2: Horty, it's always a pleasure. It's great to see you safe and sound, and uh, can't wait to hear those uh, those golden tones saying the ball is kicked off.
0: My thanks to Rodney Anderson and Jeff Hobson, and that's going to do it for this episode of the Bengals Booth Podcast, brought to you by Prime Sport, the official fan travel and hospitality partner of the Cincinnati Bengals. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. And if you have a minute, give it a rating or share a comment. That helps more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thank you for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.